And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Episode 158 of Embrace the Void, where I'm picking up what you're putting down. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're back to the question of why does everybody hate each other and why can't we all get on the same page except for the page where we hate each other. So, let's get polarized. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something... My guest this week is Kevin Dorst, a philosopher at Oxford University and University of Pittsburgh with a particular interest in polarization and irrationality. Kevin, would you like to say hi to the void? Actually, I wanted to ask, what is the void? <laughs> oh, so you got to go back and listen to the earlier episodes, especially episode one. I sort of explained it. It's a very broad uh, mandate is the way, you know, this the worst possible timeline is one way to understand the void, the the thing that we're all okay come on i'm on board with that yeah yeah Yeah. all right hi boy yeah i'm ready (laughs) well welcome (laughs) but also the thing that will comfort you in the recognition that there is no justice in the universe and and life is suffering and such so welcome um yeah yeah yeah, nothing that would be of any interest i think to you as an academic from what i can tell from your (laughs) materials um you as i said focus on polarization and irrationality so i guess my first question is what is it like to focus on things that are completely irrelevant sort of removed from current events in any kind of way do you have to like work pretty hard to sort of keep your name in the news uh actually believe it or not i did struggle with this recently i uh (laughs) well not so much like being relevant but feeling relevant i think the Mm. you know a few years ago i started wanting to do things that were more relevant. I mean, I got obsessed with polarization around it when everyone did and started thinking about it then. And so I've been working on this for a while, but I think it is very easy to get sucked into that, to the, to the sort of, I got to have relevant things to say about what's going on. And when like COVID hit and when you know, protests over George Floyd, et cetera, hit, I, uh, you know, immediately were like, what got into the, what do I have to say about this? And I didn't have much to say about it. And that was, well, a lot that's of pressure. actually a refreshingly honest take to, to acknowledge that one doesn't have much to say about the situation i think currently is quite valuable yeah i feel like it's been a, definitely been a process of trying to figure out when when to when it's worth trying to say something and when it's time to just listen yeah i mean i was suggesting earlier that we should hand out awards for folks who don't have takes about the uh, vp pick for the democratic party for example <laughs> uh yeah i don't i don't have a take on that Right. In the modern age, not having a take is a kind of heroic act that I think really deserves Uh-oh. to be praised. That's, that's, it's going to start becoming a take then, right? This is right. Well, it's, well, and there was the whole, like, you know, it's stoic to not have a take. And then there's the, you know, stoicism is bad. So you have to have the non-stoic take about having a take. So takes are really, it's hard to stay, stay out of the take game. They always kind of pull yeah. you back in, which I guess is probably also somewhat relevant to your particular interests. Um, so you and I, uh, we got put in touch, I think, because uh, mutual friend of the show, Liam Bright, uh, recognized that we had a shared interest in things like uh, the epistemic tragedy of the commons. And so I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about 
Uh, maybe you want to how you characterize the epistemic tragedy of the commons and what sorts of sort of reasons do you see individuals having that led us to the current state of polarization and irrationality that you think we're in? Totally. I feel like the, the, the basic idea is, is pretty simple. It's that when we have this, you know, sort of big collective problem, like we're all massively polarized and like there are different places to put the cause one or many places you can put the cause, but two particular places you can put it as like point to the individuals, the individuals are being dumb point to the structures. The structures are set up badly. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I guess that's the classic tragedy. The common example is like, people are overfishing and it's not because anyone's being irrational or not doing as they should given the incentives they face. It's just that uh, we've got a bad structure for collective action. And I feel like the, the basic feeling when it comes to polarization is that most people, most of the time are trying their best with, you know, the sort of the situation they're in and the information they're getting from there and the people they trust and the, uh, their, their background knowledge and, information and so on and so that that's sort of the <laughs> the general picture i feel like mm -hmm. my my uh my line on what the sort of structure of the uh, the problem is that we've got the, we've got all these like general psych psychological and sociological mechanisms that lead people to strengthen their beliefs to sort of strengthen their amounts of trust for people to trust and distrust for people they distrust to hang out with people that are similar to them and become more confident in their opinions when they talk to people that have similar opinions to them and all the rest. And those are just sort of always there. Uh, and that's sort of a marker general of society. And that in the last few decades, there've been like a couple changes. One is the, um, I like a lot of the story of uh, Ezra Klein's new book, The, the Why mm -hmm. We're Polarized, that there has been, a, to some extent, a, a unique rise in polarization in the U.S. And one way to trace the story is in terms of the Southern realignment and that in the civil rights movement of the 60s, the Democrats eventually became the party of the liberals and the Republicans became the party of the conservatives and each party became much more consistent. And all of a sudden, although no a lot of people's opinions didn't become more extreme. They became more sorted. They sort of uh -huh. people who you know, 70, 80 years ago, if you knew my opinions about gun rights, you could not predict my opinions about abortion, but now you can. Uh, and so those sort of things started to align within the parties. And so then that was a sort of, <laughs> yeah. So is it good. So there's a lot there, I think. And I'm actually, I think agree with the vast majority of it. I think I'm also very sympathetic to Ezra Klein's um, analysis of the way that sort of, in answer to uh, one of the questions I was curious about with you is sort of why is this polarization different from all other kinds of polarization? Um, and I think there are a couple of answers I think that we can put forward. And one of them is the, the Ezra Klein style analysis that the current polarization is unique because we're polarized on so many different levels of our identity that to change our identity on any one level would involve such a massive break from our entire sort of sense of identity that there's just so much weighing against everybody anybody sort of making those kinds of breaks um and yeah. i think that's that's one model that's plausible though i also am sympathetic to um in, in our discussions and, and reading some of your stuff that you have a slightly other different explanation about why the current state of polarization is particularly toxic it seems like having to do with demonization do you want to maybe talk a little bit about sort of your theory of why in this particular case of polarization we're seeing higher levels of demonization and and how that arose in a uh historic context yeah definitely um i mean it's certainly related to and i think probably synergistic with klein's story but uh insofar as we think of demonization as the sort of polarization that's like not that i disagree with you but i hate you it's sometimes called effective polarization as opposed mm -hmm. to issue polarization and you know one reason i might hate you no offense <laughs> uh, is because we disagree on so many things not only do we disagree on gun rights but we disagree on abortion and we disagree on religion we disagree on the role of government and all the rest and that could be a reason to but another reason i might look at your range of opinions and think really negatively of you is that i think those opinions are not only wrong but and i disagree with them but they're irrationally based they were they're biased they're sort of they exhibit uh, some sort of 
epistemic or moral failing. Uh, and so one driver of polarization, I think, is attributions of irrationality and other sorts of cognitive failings to the other side, explaining why the other side believes what they do by appealing to irrationality and bias. And mm -hmm. one way to tell the story is to point out that there was this huge rise of interest in irrationality and sort of picture of the human condition as fundamentally irrational from you know, the mid 20th century on with the rise of the heuristics and biases tradition in psychology and the rise of behavior economics and the sort of permeation of those sort of narratives about human irrationality of humans saying that people are fundamentally irrational in their reasoning into pop culture. And so if we start thinking about sort of our massive disagreements and explaining them by appealing to irrationality, mm -hmm. uh, it's very natural, almost inevitable, I'd say, just, you, know, you and I disagree. I think that was caused by irrationality. But I can't think it was caused by my irrationality, because if I did, I would give up my beliefs. I can't think Trump's an idiot, but I'm irrational to believe that. If I, if I believe I'm rational to believe that, I'm going to drop the belief. Mm -hmm. And so if I think we disagree because we're of irrationality, I'm going to think it's your rationality that did it. And if I think that, then I'm hop, skipping a jump away from demonizing you. Yeah, and this is a kind of argument that I feel like I personally can see heavily in the left and in the liberal world that I grew mm. up in, where people who were very pro-science and pro-rationality and pro-atheism you know, atheism and the rejection of um, unjustified beliefs got very you know interested in, some of which was good, some of which was problematic evidence about uh, who has justified beliefs from a psychological uh, perspective and such. And then um, when they felt fairly confirmed that they were the ones who were sort of reasoning from a non-emotional place, uh, inferred that the, the other groups were folks that, like, could be sort of written off or ignored or made fun of in various kinds of ways. Um, and that, that, to me, I think led to a... a you know, a, a pushing, you know, like a, a polarization, a demonization of the right that was, I think, you know, a, a based on a felt anger about the way the right had demonized the left for a long period of time. But I do think there was like a, a writing off of any guilt about the demonization of these people who are so dumb and misguided that they still believe in Christianity after the year 2000 or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I have friends that... Sorry for the siren in the background. I have some friends who pointed out, reminded me of like when we were young, watching The Daily Show, for example, or The Colbert Report. Like much of the humor was based on the sort of um, thinking of you know, finding that instance of the most irrational seeming beliefs or whatever, and making fun of them in that way. It certainly seems right that uh, it's part of the become part of the left culture to to or at least certain forms. Okay, well, let's actually, since you mentioned yeah. Daily Show, and I, I grew up on The Daily Show, and I like I know that like it's sort of out of vogue now in some kinds of ways, um, and it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, uh, I guess, uh, boomerish to reference people like Jon Stewart, but there's a classic <laughs> debate that took place. I think this was even when John Oliver was back still on Daily Show before he, uh, you know, rose to HBO fame. So there was this bit where they did you know they were i think it was like a fox news thing that they were making fun of i think it was i think it was actually like fox news uh simultaneously attacking this wealthy arab individual as being a source of terrorism while also ignoring that fox news was funded by the same wealthy arab individual in, in some way right yeah. so they, they played the game they called um stupid or evil Right? Are they too stupid to know that he's actually the person funding their corporation, or are they too evil to care? Um, and I think there's a kind of it's hard not to slip into that dichotomy, right? I guess what I don't want to say, I don't love either of those words, and I would use better words like you know unaware of the facts or um, you know low empathy or lack of compassion or something like we can, we can put it in different terms, but at the end of the day, it does seem like either there's a breakdown on the facts side or the value side um, and how do we avoid thinking about things that way or should we think about it that way but like less angrily or something 
<laughs> Got it. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I want to make a pretty heavy distinction between what we say about Fox and what we say about the viewers of Fox and right? mm -hmm. what we say about likewise or other. And that I think, you know, I in general have relatively little problem with looking to the people who are running these big news organizations or propaganda machines, depending on where you're coming from, and uh, saying they're acting badly, maybe in bad faith, like definitely they're not stupid in some sense. And I mean, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say evil, but you know, I, I take the point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the, the vast majority sort of, it's one thing to demonize those people. It's another thing to demonize, you know, this massive group of the electorate who voted for Trump say, and maybe uh -huh. watch Fox regularly and so on. And I feel like it's much easier for me to get in the mindset that viewers of Fox who aren't going to watch the Daily Show are not going to see that, see the inconsistencies, or if they do see them, they'll already distrust the Daily Show far more. They distrust Fox and so it'll be hard to, <laughs> sure, hard to of work. But they are neither, neither stupid nor evil. And so that's Okay, so what should we think then about like diehard Trump supporters at this point? Should we feel pity for them as members of an unironic death cult? Like, what are, what is the correct emotive stance to have towards uh, these individuals? Do you think? I think I think we should be fascinated. I think we should be fascinated by them and fascinated by, in some ways, the, the ways in which we're fascinated by them. So, like, I, you know, I was in twenty sixteen. I was in Boston, uh, surrounded by liberal friends and so on. And like uh, the election results were this you know, huge shock for me as they were for a lot of people. And it, part of the, the feeling was this like, look around, like, who are these people? Who, 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 are, you know, who are the people mm -hmm. who could have voted for Trump? And I did a lot of, I mean, part of what that made me realize is like, I grew up in like a rather conservative, small town in Missouri. And I had a bunch of conservative friends when I was growing up. And somehow I had lost touch with all of them. Uh, that, or the, mm -hmm. the few friends I did stay in touch with had were now liberal. Uh, and that was, that was fascinating to me because it was just like, it showed the sort of partisan sorting, like in some ways, like the, the client story illustrated that. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, in some ways, the fact that it's so hard to understand how they could have those beliefs without being evil or stupid, I think is a sign that we're, we're missing, we're missing part of the picture. We're missing. You know. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm curious what you think that could be. I, I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced that we're missing part of the picture, right? I think we soften the terms here a little bit and say, you know, they've, they've been put into an, and here's my analysis, right? You've been put into an isolation as a death cult. It has denied you consistent, reliable sources of information for a generation. It has trained you to reject the evidence from experts. It has primed you in every possible way to be a target for a huckster like Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump comes along and plays to all of the worst instincts of these individuals and, and and by worst i mean you know ranging from outright racism to you know just anxiety about their loss of face within a radically changing society or something like that mm -hmm. um I, I guess i'm curious why that that doesn't paint a sufficient picture or is that is that something that you think is fine and is sufficiently far enough away from demonizing that you would be okay with an, an, an account like that got it uh in some ways i think it's far enough Away. I mean, modulo, modulos, like mm -hmm. <laughs> choice of words or whatever. I think it's, it doesn't, insofar as it says they're doing the best they can with the situation they have. It's like, mm -hmm. it, it's not demonizing in, in a certain sense, in a, in a sense that I think. They're acting way. rationally as one would within a death cult. They're doing what you'd do if you were there, sort of. Yes. Uh, if you were at Jonestown, this is how you would act. And it, with, yeah, with that sort of like, you know, to try to bring out the there before the grace of God go I sort of feeling. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm big on moral luck. I, I, when I say pity uh, them, I really genuinely mean like, you know, it could, it could be anybody, right? If you just happen to have the unfortunate luck of being pushed into a particular worldview, you end up in a, in a really dark place. Totally. So yeah, I think broadly, 
I mean, I mean, it depends on which sort of Trump supporters we're we're talking about. Of course, I think there are, you know, there are, there are the whole new those Trump supporters, which my sense are, given the negative partisanship of our day, are quite a large portion of them. And then there are the diehard Trump supporters, and I'm definitely more inclined to go the story you told way for the for the diehard ones and for the um, more like this is the best choice and a bad option instead of bad option. Yeah, I'm actually I mean, really I, curious to see what percentage of those two make up of, of like like people who are actually going to end up voting for him. That's an interesting question of how many are still hanging on for, uh, yeah. you know, I'll hold my nose for one more um, seat versus, you know, I think he's the second coming, right? Because there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a big gap between those two, and I'm curious totally. which one's really like driving the ship at this point. Yeah, I would, I would like to see more. I mean, my, 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 I can never remember the steps that I read. So I remember reading that negative partisanship in the sense of dislike of the other party was driving at least much of the 2016 election as opposed mm -hmm. to the you know, like of the, of the candidate you have. But and I believe that too. And this is where I'm like very sympathetic to because I think a lot of the concerns that you have where what I really see is this out of control emotional feud between the right and the left that has escalated. And, and like, you know, we can analyze how the Southern strategy really set it in motion and how it has been, you know, horribly exacerbated by social media and other kinds of technology and such. Um, but at the end of the day, here we are all trapped in this really angry, scary place with no, like, off-ramps and no way to de-escalate as far as I can see. Um, and so I'm curious, your your project, I, I think you've described it roughly, as something like sort of trying to push back on the irrational narrative, the irrationalist narrative in particular, this idea mm -hmm. that right certain groups are acting irrationally. Um, and I'm curious to see how you're, how that's been going. Do you feel like you've convinced yourself that you that human beings are sort of more rational despite you know the past couple of years, um, or like, are, are you sort of like just hanging on to that theory and trying to hope that we can move back in that direction? What's your what's your feeling about this? Well, yeah, so I, I'll say something to that, I, to the mm -hmm. to how mm -hmm. rational I think we are. I don't necessarily think it's going to help with the feeling of we're on it. We're not. OK, we're in a bad situation. So, OK, uh, we can we can we can talk about the connection, uh, but it's probably still a tragedy regardless of how the rationality story goes. But as far as the rationality story goes, I think certainly I was saying at the beginning, I don't necessarily have super strong takes on everything. And this one is something I, I don't necessarily have a super strong take in. But here's, mm -hmm. here's how I lean these days. Uh, <laughs> there was something definitely deeply right about the, uh, um, some of the psychological, the, and biases tradition and behavioral economics noting the flaws in standard economic models of rationality say that mm -hmm. sort of was happening in the late 20th century and giving giving rise to a lot of these irrationalist narratives um, like those simple you know your favorite basic decision theory models uh, of rational action are wrong in serious ways um, they're wrong about how people do act but they're also wrong about how people should act um, mm -hmm. and uh one basically after spending years in diving into the literature of the psych literature and judgment decision making and so on that gave rise to this my sense is really that um a lot of interesting empirical data that refuted a bad theory of rationality and it's much much harder to see whether how genuinely irrational they are showing people to have been Interesting. So you mean like there's there's evidence that we're definitely not pure rational, you know, homo economicus or whatever, but how actually irrational we are, it's still, you feel like, fairly, fairly fuzzy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, as I, would, I would say we're not homo economicus, and, but homo economicus would be irrational okay. too. Uh, <laughs> sort of, that's a bad theory okay, of rationality. Fair enough. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, basically insofar as you have some basic idea that rationality is doing the best you have with the circumstances and resources you have than some, you know, much more sophisticated, bounded, rationally sort of bounded rationality sort of picture of what humans are up to given the intractable complexity of the world uh -huh. seems like a so, so we, 
so we have like these two questions right we have should human beings really actually be purely rational or maybe what is it you know maybe three questions what is it should be really be purely rational what does it really mean to be purely rational um and then practically speaking how far empirically are we from whatever it is that we think that we should be headed towards right yeah i think that that's right and part of my my sense is that i'm pretty convinced that a lot of the standard irrationalist narratives um, are largely built on comparing humans to a bad target. Mm -hmm. Now, what what exactly we'll see when we compare them to better targets, I think is, you know, that's, that's not a question one should you know, like claim to have any sort of sweeping answer towards or that really okay. should, but my, my sense is in going into the details often that real target is not nearly so far yeah, i think i'm sympathetic to that i think because i i come from also a background of feeling that there's an overemphasis on a kind of very sterile rationality that would not even be desirable if we could habituate ourselves into achieving it mm. um and then also thinking that humans can be habituated to be more you know not strictly rational so much as reasonable right as like uh, able to to make sense of, of a wide range of reasons um so i think that makes sense to me are there like concrete examples of particular kinds of biases or you know any particular stories where you feel like people are still particularly caught up in uh seeing human beings as ir fundamentally irrational in x kind of way where it does it turns out it's not actually so much the case yeah totally so i mean one that I think is super relevant for the question of politics in particular is confirmation bias. So this idea that people have a tendency to, um, well, two tendencies, one to look for information that confirms their prior beliefs and two to um, when information comes in, interpret it in a biased way that tends to favor their prior beliefs. Mm -hmm. I think that so tends to confirm recently... what I believe. So I agree with you. <laughs> as you should uh, so, um yeah so a couple of thoughts on this one is that um just the empirical evidence is actually quite murky so i tweeted this thing a couple weeks ago this dissertation by jess whittlestone that basically spent you know, started out convinced that confirmation bias was the you know the source of much evil um and then you know said okay i'm going to figure out how to solve confirmation bias and then eventually was convinced that actually this is much ado about little having confirmation, bias, um, confirmation so like, bias is really beautifully meta i'm a big i'm a big exactly. uh, lover of meta so i really like where this is going so i mean she you know, there, there are basically two i mean there are a bunch of ways to break down confirmation mm. bias but here are two key components one is so-called selective exposure that people tend to look for new information when given a choice that confirms their prior beliefs. The second is bias assimilation, that they, when given ambiguous evidence or evidence that can be interpreted in different ways, they tend to favor it, favor the interpretation that favors their prior. Littlestone basically says, well, the evidence for selective exposure is very mixed at best. Hmm. There is evidence for bias assimilation, but I mean, yeah, so first of all, that's a so we don't go looking for evidence so much as we're just better at remembering the things that confirm what we want to be confirmed. That's part of it. Yeah. So that, I think this is, that's some of the empirical background. I think that the normative question is the really hard one when it comes to confirmation bias, because basically, you know, here's a, here's a phenomenon we see people do sometimes tend to look for information that they think is going to be confirmed or they tend to check. I tend to check New York times, not Fox. Um, and they do tend to interpret information in a you know, way that favors their prior beliefs. And the question is, well, but when is that irrational? Because mm -hmm. like, there are certainly many cases in which it is. So like, take your you know, standard story of the scientist, the paragon of rationality, the whole idea confirming you have some scientific hypothesis and you go about trying to confirm mm -hmm. it. <laughs> um, so many of the examples that people give of confirmation bias when pitched in sort of the, the scientist investigating theory are, are sort of simply thought to be 
and it seems like there's a lot of trouble in actually <sighs> proving that someone doesn't have confirmation bias right so like the falsificationist stuff was supposed to be an attempt to get away from just looking for evidence that confirms your belief to looking for evidence that could disconfirm it but that brings with it all its own kinds of issues and a lot of things are not sort of falsifiable in functional kinds of ways so it seems like yeah and, that... I, and, I, and i'm a good bayesian uh -huh. so i <laughs> <laughs> you mean a subjective oh, yeah. bayesian is that the right one uh not, not too subjective but just yeah. <laughs> uh i i, I have different flavor but certainly i'm more objective than most Mm -hmm. But uh, syllabasian, so you can confirm things in many ways, including. But so I guess I don't think I made the key point. Basically, is sort of when it comes to looking. When is it rational to get, look for confirmatory yeah. evidence? When is it rational to interpret things ev conflicting evidence in a way that favors your prior right. beliefs? And when you're in a hurry, you don't have a very like good. Well, well, that's certainly right. But I, mean, I think the general point: we don't have a very good clear theory about that we don't you know we, we can apply various bayesian models in various particular situations and like try to give some normative standard but the the vast majority of confirmation bias studies do not do no work to try to say what the you know what this target is that they're showing that people are deviating from they're showing that people tend to confirm their beliefs maybe but they're not showing that they shouldn't in those circumstances so that's that's one of the reasons why i think confirmation bias is which gets a lot of Pressness, quite a pedigree, is also like one of the most um, hard to. Pin well, I mean, down. I, I'm just a simple ethicist, so I just have, uh, I just adopt yeah. Clifford's view, right, and just only believe things on which I have sufficient evidence. I don't, I don't understand why y'all can't simply adopt only beliefs for which you have sufficient evidence. What's the issue? Well, I, I know what the right prior is, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure you do. That's that's the problem. I see. Can you could you give me a list? Is there like an app? Is there a Bayes app where I can just look at my phone and it'll say your priors on this particular situation should be X? I'll work on that. Once I once I market that, then I, I think mean, I... look, I, if you had if you could sell a Bayes app to anybody, Silicon Valley, I feel like they're going to be the people who want an app that'll tell them what their priors should be every moment of every day. I think that's a pretty easy lift, actually. Um, so. Your, one of your other solutions, or solutions, I, I, in air quotes, obviously, of course, because we're all screwed. One of your other yeah. things that you're interested in trying to see how we can address it is the issue of political empathy. Now, I'm curious, what do you mean by empathy? And from from what I understand, you have, don't get hit with the, but Paul Bloom says that empathy is bad, and so now you've used the word empathy, and I'm confused, response. Um, so I'm curious what kind of empathy you have in mind and why you think it might be uh, valuable to this particular situation. Yeah, I, I am. When you mentioned that, I'm, I'm curious why I haven't gotten that response. So I don't think it's fair. I get that all the time. <laughs> yeah, so I think you know the the sort of political empathy that I have in mind um, that is sort of, and maybe this is why I don't get the response. It's sort of a form of intellectual empathy, and empathy is maybe a, a stretch word there. I mean, the it's, it's being able to in some sense, get where the other person's coming from. Um, so I feel like this is like a, a skill that grad school teaches you that like, you know, I went into grad school in philosophy with all sorts of strong ep philosophical opinions. And in my case, I lost most of them <laughs> in grad school and instead got very good at saying, well, let me, let me put my consequentialist hat on and here's what I would say. Now let me put my virtue theory hat on this. Here's what I would say. And let me put my Bayesian hat on. Which, Honestly, I have on those days. Here's what I would say. I assume that's just <laughs> so, like more like an umbrella that sits over all the other hats, no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's an umbrella. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have the it's same the, problem. Sort of yeah, political. like the more ethics that I study, the more when people ask me ethical questions, I'm like, well, it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually, it, it, it's why it's one of the reasons I have trouble writing on, on politics. Hard to have a very strong opinion. So, why is empathizing your way into this mush a good thing? <laughs> right. So, I, the the sort of idea is that we're much better off if I, as a liberal, can say, you know, see some conservative, say, vote for Trump or uh, oppose some policy that I, well, I take your favorite example, uh, and just you know, one reaction to say, okay, that's dumb, I disagree with it, and then you know, sorry, that's disagree mm -hmm. with it. I just, sorry, that's wrong. I disagree with it. Uh, and that's dumb. Another reaction say that's wrong. I disagree with it. But I see where they're coming from. I sort of get, 
I can I can see the, what's motivating them to vote. For. I can see why. What's I'm big into the hot. Always I always forget how to print it, pronounce the author's name. Hostile, the strangers in their own mm-hmm. land. Um, very into this idea that like okay, well, if I can sort of get the sort of narrative that's driving these people, the idea that like maybe there's this long American dream which I'm losing out on, and other people are cutting in line, like. If I can see where they're coming from, then I have a much better grip on what's going Mm -hmm. on. (laughs) This is actually something that I'm really interested in with moral education. Uh, To me, the the, the sort of terminology that I've glommed onto because of my background with Gestalt psychology is is sort of cognitive flexibility, the ability to Mm -hmm. adopt a flexible array of different perspectives on an ethical issue and really, you know, like genuinely take them into account before you eventually come to hopefully some sort of somewhat functional synthesis. Um, Do you feel like that's in the same, you know, sort of domain of what you're getting at here? Yeah, I think totally. I think that I haven't, was that, what was the term? Cognitive, Cognitive flexibility, flexibility, yeah. So the, the ability to like, in yeah. formal terms, they use the word gestalt, uh, the whole, the image that's created when you combine all the pieces together. And so the ability to take all the pieces apart and recombine them into very different gestalts. So like to look at an optical illusion and flip from the rabbit to the duck or something like that, right? That's the kind of flexibility. And I think um, I think it is something that is very difficult for folks right now, especially when, when people are, you know, like really emotionally engaged um, to to flip the perspective, especially because there's, there's another problem here, of course. And I think, you know, we've been talking sort of largely, I think, in the idealistic way, but like practically on the ground, right, this if you were to start enacting the desire to become sort of more openly mushy in this kind of way, we're in a current situation or, you know, real politics situation where people will immediately take advantage of you and do great harm. And so like, there's a real applied ethics problem of, yes, I want to be empathic, but I also want to be hard enough that like I can hold the line in terms of, protecting people's basic rights or something like that. So how do you, do you feel yourself totally. trying to like make that balance work in your own head as well? Um, trying to, uh, yeah, I, but I, I feel like that's the end of it. So I think I totally agree that we've, we've we're in a situation where like all the incentives are wrong for empathy and for like sort of being able to put on, um, yeah, you know, it's very clear what would happen if I went onto Twitter right now and said, like, well, let me try to get in the head of, you know, this Trump mm-hmm. voter or whatever, this person who just said this. And, like, it's very clear what would happen. I would be, like, signaling some sort of alignment with the right, and surely a lot of my left-leaning friends would not be happy with and that. Me... And, you know, if I, if I do it excitedly enough, then maybe I'll get canceled. I mean, yeah, let me even just jump in besides, be... besides those, like, the fear of I would be viewed as also on the right. I think there's also a, a narrow, like, a, a reasonable point to be said, which is, you know, we there's a lot of energy has been poured into having this empathy for Trump voters. More empathy, one would argue, than has been poured into yeah. having and uh, well, like we can even debate like the what about us and about who's had the right amount of empathy poured into them. But I guess what I'm saying yeah. is, you know, there's been a lot of empathy poured into them in this kind of way, and. Uh, while I think we do have a much clearer understanding of the the ways in which you know um, social anxiety combined with racial anxiety to create this particular outcome, um, I'm I'm not sure that it's it's actually provided a particular path forward for us. And I guess sort of, sort of what I'm wondering is is the idea we just we just need to keep pushing on that door in the hope that it's going to open because there's no other option or like do you feel like we have made substantial progress in a way that will be that will actually yield fruit compared to what people actually were expecting would happen uh no <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah i um i don't think this is the, i said it's a tragedy right? i think the difference between tragedy um, and comedy is where the punchlines are located yeah. i think one thing that my sense is there's a lot of agreement on if there's not even though no agreement about what to do about it is that you know in the situation part of the reason why polarization has skyrocketed clearly has to do with the structure of the modern internet and the incentive mm-hmm. structure of you know the way social media and so on um prioritize different styles of engagement and so on and it's um <laughs> I, I sort of see the project of trying to build some amount of empathy, some amount of respect, some amount of 
feeling of, okay, this person's actually reasonable or rational uh, as trying largely in vain to, uh, you know, push back against some of the emotive incentives of those platforms. But I mean, my sense is the only way that the sort of spiral of increasing effective polarization is really going to shift is if we start to shift the mm -hmm. somehow the way those those engagements happen that sort of insofar as we we always have tendencies to polarize and the informational and social choices that we now have have put those into overdrive you know it's not clear how to put the genie back in the bottle but uh -huh. as far as i know that's the only well, way so, to do it you know at the beginning you were mentioning well this is a tragedy of the commons right so it's not that the actors are being irrational it's not it's so we, we could say both ways right it's not that the trump voter is being irrational for voting for Trump. And it's also not irrational for the opponents of Trump to sort of, in many ways, write off the Trump voter uh, as as someone who cannot be reached effectively for whatever, you know, reason, uh, whatever problem we want to, we want to hang it on. Um, so, you know, like, I think, I think we, we slip back into this mindset of thinking the solution is individuals need to be more empathic, right? That like, we just need to summon up more concern for these folks rather than like, you're like, we need to make substantial changes to the way Twitter works or something, right? Like or shut it, shut down Twitter or just like, there's going to be some like systemic change that is being done. And that much like with climate change, if we just keep slipping back into saying, well, what can I as an individual do to make the hostilities a little bit less lower? That's just missing the problem entirely. Yeah, I totally agree. I think like insofar as, you know, I'm not a, not a guy with a plan. I don't claim that <laughs> sort of any, any sort of whatever theory I have about polarization uh, is necessarily going to help. But insofar as I have a plan, it's to reach, you know, the <laughs> change the way the people write, well, of course, people write op-eds on polarization, change the way that mm -hmm. uh, the executives at Twitter and so on see see the problem of polarization so that they're not blaming the individual. So we don't mm -hmm. we don't sort of let the people in charge of the structures off the hook by saying, well, this is just a result of people being irrational and so we need to work on educating people to have better media habits and better ways of engaging. So no, that's not gonna work because people are doing the best they can. What's <laughs> What's going to work is changing the structure. Now, I don't know how to change the yeah. structure, but <laughs> it's hard. Like, how do we even convince the people who think that who are very much on the individual responsibility side of things who think that, like, if you don't, you know, maybe people should just log off Twitter voluntarily where we don't have to restrict Twitter's behavior in any kind of way. People can just choose not to huh. use it in those kinds of ways and the kingdom of ends will dawn naturally or something like that. Right. <laughs> like, how do you even convince them that there is such a thing as systemic problems that need to be addressed with specifically systemic solutions. Yeah, I guess I'm, I, not an easily answered question. I just like, you know, I just wonder how we, how we manage any of these, like it just, there's this feeling of, you know, we need to be solving climate change and that's like step 1000 and like the first one through 999 steps is getting everyone back to a point of not hating each other and being able to agree on basic information enough that like we can agree there is a problem and we are interested in, in like making decisions to change it. So, I mean, that was, that was, I don't know, not still is, but it was my great hope with the pandemic when this was breaking was like, okay, well, it's very easy. There's a fairly compelling narrative that part of why, you know, we had historic lows of polarization and then some in certain, on certain metrics, very um, good social things were happening in the mid 20th century in the United States, in part because of the, the result of these two crises, inequality was squashed, all these things. Uh, and there's some hope that maybe with another big crisis, like a global pandemic, that'll have some uh, effect on the polarized structures. I mean, maybe best way to try to debunk a demagogue who clearly doesn't know what's going on is to throw a bunch of uh, mm -hmm. hard to deny viruses. Yeah, that will. Uh... So that was the hope. I mean, so maybe maybe some series of crises, some series of shocks that hopefully are not as violent and terrible as the shocks of the 20th century can 
get us on a better path. But doesn't doesn't look to be going that way yet. Well, it's, it's interesting. I do think that what we have seen is people are burned out in a variety of ways by the Trump years and that like even people who i think are sort of nominally pro sticking it to the libs are 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 suffering from exhaustion and burnout to some extent as well and that all of that has been really really exacerbated by uh the the COVID situation and so like i think i think it's reasonable to say you know there's a lot of uncertainty a lot can happen in a couple of months but like given the current situation i i, I would be unsurprised by a large number of people voting for a return to normalcy and what seemed to them to be a kind of stability and i know that, that is something that is unappealing to people on both the far left and like you know the medium left right anyone who thinks that they are farther left than the current democratic ticket versus um people on the right as yeah. well but i do think that a large group of people are coming from a place of burnout um and i actually want to ask you speaking of burnout do you feel like part of the issue and part of what's making it so that it's very difficult to de-escalate is that everyone is experiencing a lot of empathy burnout as well that it's just it's very hard to continue to summon up a bunch of empathy for a lot of people when you're having this really hard time because we're all having a really hard time and then you know you've been trying to care and and like people keep telling you you have to care more people are gonna die and we're all just like exhausted from it yeah uh yeah i think that's i mean in some ways just like i think all sorts of forms of confirmation bias can be rational it's it's rational to spend your cognitive resources on the thing on the Hmm. understanding the things you've looking for information you think is going to help looking, you know, interpreting information in a way that seems like it makes sense. Likewise, it makes sense to spend your empathy points on like the people that you care about. And insofar as parts and sorting has meant that most of those people are people you agree with, uh, then we have much less emotional resources to spend trying to understand that annoying Trumpster who just commented on my tweet with some, you know, uh, mm-hmm. frustrating objection uh so i put it that way but that seems empathy burnout is 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 part of the problem and i feel like yeah i think that's one sense in which the the sort of empathy i'm going for i think it has less to do with the sort of yeah i really want to feel warmly and understand towards and understand and get in the mindset and the feelings of the trump supporter Mm -hmm. friend or whatever Mm -hmm. Only I had one, um, but it's more on this sort of okay. Let let's see if I can understand how the problem is arising, not from this guy being an idiot, but from other things going on. And that's sort of a, a first step in, in in changing my focus of the problem. The problem is not this guy. The problem is not this annoying Trump supporter who's commenting on my feed. It's mm-hmm. it, it's something something about the, the structure of the way we're interacting. Yes. Do you? You know, mostly I think you're anti-demonization, um, which I think is not an implausible position. But I'm curious, uh, do you feel like there are situations in which increased demonization could either be justified in principle or in practice as a technique, you know, right, as a mechanism for bringing about a, a desired kind of change? Are there any situations in which, you know, is it okay? Like, where do we just draw, you know, distinguish between demonizing and like, you know, making clear that the folks who are, you know, involved in conspiracy theories about COVID are sort of deeply, you know, harmful individuals and blood is on their hands and such. How do we, how do we safely and functionally draw that line? And how do we actually also, as individuals, have catharsis about those facts, right? Like, how do we not carry this poison around inside of us to some extent without venting and purging a little bit of it in our um you know views towards others yeah i mean it's a great question i mean i think it's totally right that um what's sometimes called enclave deliberation is a very important part of polarization where people who are like-minded talk together and work things out and work out their views and usually if it's successful get really worked up and angry at you know the way things are or maybe Mm -hmm. the the way some group is acting or whatever and that clearly is a very important part of the political process and political progress. Um, so I'm not, I'm not against, I think there's definitely a place for demonization in politics. Mm-hmm. I personally tend to, you know, not really like to be in those conversations. I'm not, not the rabble rouser personally, but, but yeah, I think it's, it, you know, as far as drawing the line, I have no idea, but clearly there's, there's some, 
there's some degree of balance and that when the you know in order to have a collective project of a, of a shared democracy there has to be a certain amount of shared understanding common ground uh norms and so on and that like in order to make the democracy better you've got to disrupt those norms sometimes you have to get angry get some demonization going get some ugly resolution going and change the equilibrium but when things get too far out of whack when we're already mm-hmm. out of equilibrium then it's not necessarily get get as angry and worked up as you like it's not necessarily gonna uh, maybe this, <laughs> this is some of my my political what's the word caution coming out but things are bad but it could always be so so much worse sure. and so there's you know always the risk that the ramping up yeah no, i'm supposed We'll actually not have the desire yeah, yeah and i mean this is this is something that i struggle with personally on the demonization front uh because of a my own deeply held beliefs about everybody's lack of free will and us all being sort of the result of uh, luck all the way down and so like i i really do there. sort of feel like you know there but for the grace of god go i or there before the grace of the void go i in this particular case right um <laughs> and i and so that does genuinely engender sort of sympathy and compassion in me for these scared, what seem to me to be scared, often angry individuals. But at the same time, I, you know, I, I know that there's an important sort of moral obligation to prevent them sort of from causing more harm. Um, and I recognize the need to sort of speak in sort of unequivocal terms about the harm that they are causing. Um, and so I really do struggle with you know how to express my level of fucking frustration with the trump administration or with you know people who are you know playing you know footsie with them in any various kinds of ways for the sake of their own personal pet projects while writing off the horrifying consequences of doing so um but it's it's just so difficult i think to to do that in a way where i feel like i'm um avoiding attacks from the tone police while also at the same time not actually genuinely harming my cause by by saying something that is so extreme as to be you know sort of unsupportable or something i don't know i yeah i feel like well i yeah i get i definitely get that i feel like i i struggle with this less personally because i rarely get that mad (laughs) (laughs) i get i get upset and you know, anyways, we can, we can talk more about my... I mean, well, I think I think that's actually important, right? But like, I how think... often is this emotional because we don't get emotional personally, right? I only get mad very, very angry fairly infrequently, but when I do, I get very, very angry. Um, and, like, yeah. but I do still have awareness of a kind of anger when I hear stories. And it's not the kind of anger where I could immediately do harm to somebody, but it's the kind of anger that I think is, is still meaningful there. Yeah, and I think, I think I feel like I want to bring this back to I think maybe mm-hmm. where one of the places we started. That I think there's there's totally a place for demonization in the sense that when there are you know powerful actors doing things that they should know better that are you know that are either evil or stupid, mm-hmm. then yes, I think <laughs> demonize them. I have no problem with demonizing those sort of people that well what with the demonizing sort of, of them might, gets used as people claiming that you're demonizing their followers right so if i demonize trump someone immediately turns around and says yeah. oh well you're demonizing his dumb moral followers or something like that yeah so that, i mean it's hard to draw that line but that's where I, that's where i want I, I i very much want to say yeah demonize the few people at the top who deserve to be demonized but don't you know but remember that most people are most people are average. Most people are like you, and most people, most of the time, are are doing as well as they can, just as you're doing as well as they can. Uh, and so, you know, I think I w- I would very much want to try to. You know, in my moments, I have my empathy for Trump. I feel like that guy's got to be miserable. But sure. <laughs> uh, but in I general, totally agree. I'm uh, I'm much more in terms of you know, concerned with empathizing with uh, or having a certain level of understanding for that all these people are, are following him. Yeah. At this point, I repeat like a mantra, nobody deserves to suffer. Like, I, I, like I'm trying to convince myself that it's really true <laughs> yeah, that yeah. not even Trump deserves right to suffer. Right. It's hard some days. It's, some it's days way harder some days than others. 
Uh, all right. Well, I know we're running short on time here, and I got to get you through the enlightening round. Do you have any want to give any final thoughts on polarization, demonization, um, progressalization? How we're getting through this? I feel like one one. Thing you meant to be. We said we both know Liam. We both talked about Liam Covey Brighton. One one day I was having a pretty uh, bad day thinking about some of this stuff, and and Liam said, you know, if there was Twitter right before the Civil War, <laughs> you could guess it would have been nasty. <laughs> and so, like, you know, things look pretty bad, but but things always always look pretty bad. <laughs> so. So I feel like that, that, that's, that's my that's my words of optimism. <laughs> yeah, that's very voidy, right? Yes, it's dark, but it's always dark. It's fine. Like, that's just the state of things for them to be dark. Yeah. Yeah. No, things yeah. are always darkest before they continue to be dark. Yeah, that's... I'm with you. I think that's a fair point. Um, I think that's valuable. And I guess we will always... Con- we will continue to muddle through until we are no longer continuing to muddle through. All right. Well, that brings us then to the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you you a list of things. You're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are your two options. I feel like I might might bore you here. All right. That's that's fine. If you you think it's going to be boring, (laughs) that's uh, often a, a place people start out in but rarely end in. So okay. you are ready okay. then? Excellent. Okay. So obviously this is incredibly important. People will judge you harshly based on your decisions here. So Excellent. first and foremost, okay. uh, is anything real? Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. <laughs> There's a long pause <laughs> number two. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes. Free will? No. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? Yes. Races? Yes. Species? Yes. Morality? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rights? Um, yeah. Is knowledge real? Oh, yeah. How about God or gods? Uh, wish, wish so. No. <laughs> Society? Yeah. Money? Yep. Numbers? Yep. Fictional characters? No. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Yeah, that's what I say, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna be like, is that the one you're gonna falter on? <laughs> Shares? Yeah, it's a good one. Okay. Uh, sandwiches? Yeah. Science? Yeah. Natural laws? Yeah. Beauty? Yeah. Ooh. Causality? Yeah. And finally, time? Oh, yeah. Boy, we've had a string of of very realists hanging on around here. That's <laughs> yeah, what's the highest what's the highest ratio you've ever gotten? Of... Oh, we've had someone who's done all realism. Oh, uh, really? Samuel uh, did all realists. Even uh, even fictional I believe... characters. I believe in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's I think big into Minong. Pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. So how, how do you do? feel? You survived. Uh, well, so. that's that's for the court of Twitter oh, to decide. I, I don't get to. I just execute the um, <laughs> the ones who fail. Good to know. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, I think you, I think you did all right. Um, I think it's always mostly. It's funny to figure out where are the ones where things suddenly get less easy, uh, where suddenly somebody <laughs> pauses for very long periods of time, yeah. and what those pauses really mean. Well, yeah, I feel like part of part of it. I get tired of saying yes. But, but mm. also some of them are, yeah, it's very different. Do you feel like you just have a very deflated account of real and that's why it's easy uh, to say think, yes? Yeah, I'm, I'm swapping between those. Like wait, some of the ones I say no, when I say no on free will, it's because I'm like, I'm being serious about it. When I say yes, I'm right. It's because like, well. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So for you, it's it's less important to give a correct answer for certain things than other things. 
I don't know. I don't know what's going on there, but <laughs> we can, we can it's always fun to do psychoanalysis after the fact. Um, well, thank you, Kevin. This has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work on these subjects? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, you can go to my website, kevindorst.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Kevin Dorst. Uh, and that's about it. All right. Well, thank you very much. really appreciate it. Thanks so much. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void, and the void is you. No, things are always darkest before they continue to be dark.